Good morning. I'm Sheila Cast. We're on the record. Two years ago, it was sports betting. This year, recreational marijuana. Through early voting, mail-in ballots on Election Day, nearly one million Marylanders voted in favor of adopting a constitutional amendment to legalize the use of cannabis by adults. Maryland is the 20th state to take this step. So what now? Montgomery County Delegate David Moon for years has been an advocate for legalization. Moon is vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee and chair of the Criminal Justice Impacts Subcommittee of the House Cannabis Referendum and Legalization Workgroup. Welcome to the show, Delegate Moon. Hey, thanks for having me. So it's been seven years since you sponsored legislation to accomplish this very feat. How does it feel to see it pass and by such a wide margin? It's a pretty historic accomplishment. I mean, I think it's important to realize that um, cannabis legalization on the ballot, uh, it's a pretty sweeping win. It got over 65% of the yes vote. And at this time, it is winning um, almost every single county in Maryland is voting yes. Garrett County on the uh, western edge right now is the only place um, where the no vote is leading. So... I don't think many people would have expected that um, seven, eight years ago. And in fact, when I first ran for office, people told me it was a mistake to even talk about marijuana. So this is where we are today. Adopting this constitutional amendment triggers legislation the General Assembly passed in April. Give us an overview of what that legislation does. Sure. So here's the important thing to note. Um, Question four uh, primarily is about legalizing personal use amounts of cannabis. That all begins July 2023. So legalization of personal use amounts, again, July 2023. In the meantime, um, we begin to set up all sorts of other processes, um, studies on equity, public health impacts, uh, licensing to get, th- to get ready for this. Um, we don't actually have sales starting yet. The legislature needs to come back in January to approve um, some way of issuing licenses. So starting in July 2023, in the meantime, you'll be able to grow um, cannabis. You can get it as a gift from um, someone who procured it legally. The medical market still exists. Um, but again, um, retail sales will be still some time off. So again, this is really about removing criminal penalties on possession. Well, and even next summer, dispensaries for recreational marijuana are not likely to open overnight. Um, So as a practical matter, what does this news mean for people who use cannabis? Well, I think the biggest thing that's going to happen is um, possibility of arrest and jail time for, again, personal use, small amounts, um, people who aren't selling. That's going to be the biggest effect. If you have a past conviction... Um, there's actually a series of positive reforms, in my opinion, that are going to be enacted. If you have a conviction of simple possession only, and that was the only thing going on, um, the state is going to automatically remove that from your criminal record rap sheet. So it's a, it's a form of an automatic expungement. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Marylanders who over the years um, have a criminal record now where possession of marijuana was the sole... Um, charge. Additionally, if you're currently incarcerated for possession of marijuana, you'll be able to apply to have um, that resentenced to zero. So 
um, for folks who um, have passed uh, brushes with the law with marijuana, there are a number of um, things going into effect to sort of ease um, a cleaning of their record. And for folks that are uh, currently using or um, may be interested in using it, again, the criminal penalties come down um, so that uh, it will, again, be legal to possess and use in July. But like I said, and as, as you noted, we've got some time before actual sales in a store will begin. Let me make sure I understand. You're saying expungement is possible, but the search... Even if you, even if someone with a prior conviction doesn't ask for expungement, it will not show up when someone ch- searches criminal records. If that that's was right. the, if that and was the only charge, that's right. It had to be simple possession of marijuana, and it was the only charge. If you have it mixed in with other things, like it was possession of marijuana and trespassing or some other offense, um, you can apply to have that expunged. Um, but again, if you in, in the scenario where the state's going to do the expungement for you, automatic expungement, it had to be simple possession of marijuana, and that was the only charge, the sole charge um, you were facing. So for those really simple cases where there's no question, um, the policy call from the state is, okay, if all it was was possession of marijuana, we're going to remove that from your record, and people won't see it anymore. What about Charges for possession with intent to distribute. Yeah, okay. So this is a little bit different. I, I, I keep emphasizing that the law we've passed regards um, personal use. This whole business about what to do um, with people who are dealing or were dealing, um, that in Maryland, to be clear, um, selling marijuana illegally is going to continue to remain illegal, um, a three-year misdemeanor until such time as we create a licensing system. But again, um, operating marijuana sales without a license remains illegal. Now, if your infraction is old, um, again, you will be able to apply to expunge possession of marijuana, possession with intent to distribute marijuana, three years after you've completed your sentence. Again, it's not gonna be automatic, you can apply, and for possession with intent to distribute, there's a waiting period. It'll be three years. Um, But then you can uh, have the other effects of um, expungement and clean your record off um, from possession with intent. That's Democratic Delegate David Moon of Montgomery County here on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Moon has been an advocate for legalization of cannabis for years and is part of the House work group that will craft the implementation of a recreational cannabis program in Maryland. Why did it take a constitutional amendment to accomplish legalization? Why couldn't this have been done by passing a law? Well, as I had noted, um, you know, the the measure passed uh, 65 with 65 percent approval, passed almost every county. Just one um, county is in the know at the moment. Again, I don't think people would have predicted this. And so folks really wanted to be sure um, that we were doing the right thing going forward and that we had set up a lot of safety protocols for health. And ultimately, that voters would have the opportunity to weigh in on this. Unfortunately, in Maryland, the only way we can create a ballot question um, is by amending the state constitution. As you noted, we've done that um, in other instances, um, such as legalizing gambling. And that was another one where the General Assembly, by and large, wanted the voters to have their say um, before the state implemented such a major change. 
I would have done it earlier, but here we are, and I can't complain. This is this is a great result so far. So tell me more about what lawmakers will need to do next year to set up the industry. Yeah, so some of the biggest questions remain. Um, the referendum's companion law requires the assembly to come back and put together a licensing system for retail sales, and it doesn't give us complete detail for how to do that. It says things like we have to consider equity, we've got to um, set aside some funds for minority license applicants um, to get loans and capital, um, but lots of other questions. How many licenses will, will there be? Where will these dispensaries be located? Um, will there be a tax rate? What, what will that look like? Those are the kinds of questions we've got to set forth um, starting in this January. And so I actually don't know how that's going to go, um, but I do know that the state has generally, as, as I've noted, taken a cautious approach to this. So um, I su- expect that we're going to set up um, some um, fair licensing system in the weeks to come. You said starting in this January. How long do you think the process is going to take? Well, we've been talking about this for some number of months um, and years now, frankly. Um, So I think a lot of the um, battlefield of what this debate looks like is known. So my um, guess, there's no guarantee, but my best guess is we're going to get a system set up this session. So, you know, we let out in April, um, but I think I would be shocked if the contours of our licensing system aren't set up before we get out. I mean, one of the cautions I put out there is that, um, as a matter of state pride, um, I was a little bit dismayed when um, Virginia raced through uh, uh, legislation legalizing when the Democrats um, briefly were in power over there. And so I had laid down a marker that I have a personal goal of pushing Maryland's um, licenses to be issued in stores to open on the recreational side before Virginia. Um, and that would probably be um, pushing Maryland then to have our ours open, um, you know, 2024, 2025, something like that. So it might be a couple years um, yet before the license is to roll out. But again, I think the laws um, making that happen are going to happen um, this year. Some of the one-third of voters who voted against the, the, the ballot question may be worried about the health effects of using cannabis. The website of the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, SAMHSA lists a half dozen concerns, including, quote, approximately one in 10 people who use marijuana will become addicted, close quote. How is the state legislature addressing health and mental health? Yeah, so these are fair questions. Um, I, I don't know if um, marijuana is uh, uh, physically addictive in quite the same way as some other substances, but there are um, genuine public health effects that we need to keep the tabs on. So one of the things we're doing, um, and this is based on us talking to regulators in other states that have legalized, every single one of them have told us you got to start monitoring public health outcomes right now before legalization. Otherwise, you won't know whether um, some of the effects that people um, want to watch are because of legalization or whether they were problems you had to begin with. So the law does set up um, an immediate process to start tracking public health effects. Uh, And so we're going to be doing that now and um, setting up a whole health advisory council 
um, to monitor this as we move through implementation. So um, it's certainly not being ignored, and there's uh, money, policy framework, data collection, and a whole legal infrastructure going in um, to do this. Um, and I'll also note that um, one of the other things that happens is that the alcohol and tobacco regulators um, are going to take on um, cannabis going forward, too, so that you'll see um, some policy consistency between um, the three substances. And what are the implications of this for impaired driving and enforcement? Yeah, impaired driving is a real concern. Um, the, the jury's still out, um, I think, on a lot of uh, what that looks like. Um, again, we're going to be monitoring it. Um, there's not quite like a, a, a blood alcohol content type of testing um, like we do with alcohol for cannabis, which is one of the enforcement challenges, but we are anticipating um, a expansion of drug recognition experts and field sobriety um, tests, which is, you know, basically the current way we're uh, uh, monitoring for um, impaired driving with um, not just cannabis, but a range of things like opioids and um, prescription drugs. So you're certainly going to see those efforts ramp up as we move into this new world. What lessons have been learned from the state's medical marijuana system? Well, there's so much um, I could say about that. Um, from the licensing and equity side, I think there are some some that have complaints that um, the medical system did not um, properly account for the um, the effects of the war on drugs, frankly, policy-wise on um, black and brown people in the state. So I think there's some hope that the way we do licensing on the adult use side um, does a better job there. Now, having said that, I will say um, the medical reg regulators, to my mind, do a pretty good job on the functions of um, having tested product and uh, knowing um, where these products are coming from and having a chain of custody so that um, people have uh, some confidence that what they're buying is safe and went through um, certain channels and testing. So um, hopefully we'll be able to maintain that level of confidence in the system um, on the adult use side. There's a whole range of other topics that we're going to have to keep an eye on, too. Um, diverted supply that's been legally purchased but is now being um, sold in some sort of gray market, um, and the persistence of a black market and illegal um, uh, commerce going on um, in the post-legalization world. I think, to me, that's, that's a big question because, um, again, it remains a criminal offense if you sell illegally. And so we want to keep as much of the activity in the legal realm as possible. So that's going to be an ongoing challenge based on our, uh, what we've seen in the medical market. To wrap up, what are your priorities on cannabis legalization next session? Well, I, you know, I think the focus is going to be on licensing and how, how we do that, but my goal has always been on reducing the number of people incarcerated or with a criminal record for nonviolent offenses. Um, so, yes, cannabis um, is, is one of the um, biggest drivers of those criminal records, um, but even after legalization, um, that's not going to end. So we're going to have to continue ironing out, as I've noted, um, what happens with criminal penalties um, for people who continue selling in the post-legalization world, what's, what's appropriate. Um, and on the other end of this, we still have mandatory minimums for high-volume um, cannabis 
uh, in Maryland, even post-legalization. So um, those are policy questions that I'm going to be um, trying to chip away at because, you know, to my mind, it's not going to be entirely appropriate for people to be getting lengthy mandatory minimum sentences um, after we start issuing licenses to other people to do the exact same thing. So ongoing questions um, like this are going to persist. We'll keep in touch. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. Delegate David Moon represents Montgomery County. He's vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee. At the On the Record page, we have links to more coverage about the legalization of recreational cannabis, including the Baltimore Banners report today about expungement. Quick break on the record. When we're back, a firsthand reflection on being a first-time election judge in Baltimore. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're continuing to sort through the implications of this week's election, like the choice made by Maryland voters to legalize recreational cannabis. Now let's take a few minutes to peek behind the scenes of the Democratic right. Just days before voters showed up at the polls this week, it was reported that both Baltimore City and County were still short a few hundred election judges. Here's Nikki Charlson, Deputy Administrator of the Maryland State Board of Elections, speaking with WYPR reporter Joel McCord a week ago about what to expect at polling places. Some may not be as fully staffed as as everyone would like, and so we ask that voters be patient when they arrive to vote. Joining us now is someone who answered the call to help and stepped up to serve as an election judge for the first time. Leah Strapik is also a middle school civics teacher in Owings Mills. Welcome to the show, Leah. Hi, thank you. Why did you choose to be an election judge? Um, Well, first of all, I did see sort of going around on social media and even hearing on the radio the shortage of election judges in Baltimore City. Um, so, you know, that made me think about it at first, but also I think, um, as a civics teacher, it's really important for me to kind of like walk the walk and participate in the civic process as much as possible. Um, I teach a population of students who have learning differences and a lot of them really learn through experiences and real life things that they have seen happening. Um, so I was also sort of approaching it as something that I could experience to tell them about, to continue to encourage them to be interested in the civic process, even though they still have a number of years to go before they can vote. What was training like to be a judge? Um, So there was a three-hour training that I went to on a Saturday, and my understanding is that they had several trainings um, available for people. You just had to kind of get to the right person to tell you when the training would be. Um, And so it was a three-hour training. It was really hands-on. It was very much a, like, these are the situations and scenarios that might happen on Election Day um, and how you can deal with them following the policies and the rules. So saying, you know, let's say somebody walks in and they're not at the right precinct. What can you do? Um, And so that was, I think, very helpful. And then we all received a big, fat, manual that all of us had on election day at the precinct that we could go back and refer to um, as needed just to make sure that we really were doing everything the way it was supposed to be done. 
And then on election day, which polling place did you report to? So I reported to my own polling place in Hamden um, at the Roosevelt Recreation Center. So um, it's a small district, um, but it was really fun to see all of my neighbors. I joked that I think I met every single person that lived on my street on Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of moving parts to a polling place. What did you do? So I worked at the check-in table. So my job was for when people, um, you know, walk in for the first time to welcome them, um, let them know that they're in the right place, and then to take just their information, name, address, birth date, confirm who they are, and then send them off to pick up their ballot. And was it very, very busy? Uh, we had, like, a pretty steady all day. So I think that maybe, I mean, the polls were open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. And I, there were a handful of times where we had no voters there for a few minutes, but there were at least one or two voters in the um, polling place pretty much throughout the whole, the whole day. And then we would have little rushes, you know, right? The sort of before work rush and the lunchtime rush and the after work rush. Um, and we had somebody that came you know, right at 7.59, and she said, I know that this is not the right polling place, but I want to vote, and so we could set her up with a provisional ballot, and our chief judge made it very clear to her that there was no rush. She can take as much time as she wants to vote. Um, and so we kind of had people there from doors open to doors closed. What surprised you about the experience? Um, what surprised me? I think for me... Um, I also sort of took this moment as a time to, like, set aside my own divisive thoughts sometimes and just say, I'm here to support everybody's right to participate in this process, whether I agree with them or not. So I don't know if that so much surprised me because I obviously understand that we all have our differences and are entitled to that. But I just, that was something that kept running through my head all day was that I don't care what people that are coming in. I don't care what they think or who they're going to vote for. Um, I am just really here to make sure that they are exercising this right in a way that they feel supported and welcomed and free to do so. You mentioned the training covered um, provisional voting. Was there a lot of, did you see a lot of that and, and why? Yeah, actually we did at our precinct. So apparently there had been some changes in districting in terms of people's um, precincts and the, their polling place, and a lot of people were unaware of that. Um, and, you know, people even had their voter registration card that had our precinct address on it, but we had to say, I'm sorry, your precinct has changed since the last time. And so the options are you can either go to your correct precinct or cast a provisional ballot here. Um, and so I would say most people chose to just cast the provisional ballot. It's a couple extra steps and a little more paperwork. Um, but, you know, we just made it very clear to people, your vote still counts, you're, you are welcome to do this, or you have the choice of going to your correct polling place. Um, so that, hap that did surprise me, actually. That happened more than we, than we thought it would. You mentioned teaching middle school civics is, was part of your motivation to sign up as a judge. Have you talked to your students about the experience? Oh, yeah. They, so I had to take Tuesday off. Um, I took a personal day to, you know, to do this. And then I came back yesterday and they were just full of questions. They were like, how is one of them said, how is your little voting pop up thing? And I said it was a little bit more than that. Um, 
so yeah, no, they they just they have questions about just sort of how the whole process works. A lot of students, I do show them like the sample ballots that we get in the mail and that are available online because a lot of them just really don't have an understanding of how many things might be on a ballot. Um, and I think that goes for adult voters as well sometimes. Um, so, yeah, they just they ask questions that I hadn't really thought of, which, you know, they, a lot of my students are dyslexic, so we talk about how um, there are options to have people read ballots to you or the ballot marking devices can have an audio function that folks can use to have it read to them. Um, so they like to hear those kinds of things as well. Real quickly before we go, would you serve as an ele- as an election judge again? Oh, absolutely. I'm planning on it for the um, presidential election. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Lee Strapic, Leah Strapic is a middle school civics teacher in Owings Mills. On Tuesday, she served for her first time as an election judge in Baltimore City. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. 